0: Hi, this is Cindy from My Nursing Mastery, and today we're going to cover urinary elimination. Before we get started, let's just review a few of the basic anatomy points about the urinary system. Remember, as with our previous podcasts, when you hear this sound... Pay special attention as this may show up on the NCLEX. The kidneys are the primary regulators of fluid and acid-base balance in the body. Those are connected to the bladder by ureters that are about 1.25 centimeters in diameter. These connect to the bladder and in females, the bladder lies in front of the uterus and vagina and in males, It lies in front of the rectum and just above the prostate. These are important points to keep in mind when you care for someone with a urinary elimination problem or intervention, simply because the way it's structured and functions will, in fact, impact urinary elimination or problems with the urinary system. This is important for critical thinking as you care for these patients. For example, because the ureters are small in diameter, they are susceptible to blockages very easily. Any type of inflammation or infection can cause a blockage and back up urine into the kidneys. It's also important to remember that the bladder is surrounded and made up of smooth muscle. And the position and length of the urethra is important it differs in males and females. In females, it lies directly behind the symphysis pubis anterior to the vagina. And it's only about one and a half inches long. In males, the urethra is much longer and the track to the bladder runs through the prostate. Because of this, Females are more likely to get urinary tract infections due to the small urethra. And males are more likely to have obstruction as a result of prostate problems. I mentioned the smooth muscle of the bladder. Micturation is also called voiding or urination. It's the process of emptying the bladder. There are stretch receptors throughout the bladder and these sensory nerve endings are stimulated when the bladder is about 250 to 450 milliliters full of urine. Sensory nerves are connected to the spine at about the second to fourth sacral vertebrae. So keep all of these anatomy points in mind as you care for these patients. So let's begin by talking about normal expectations around voiding. We mentioned fluid and acid base balance. The kidneys accomplish this by removing waste and concentrating urine. The ability of the kidneys to concentrate urine is directly related to the health of the kidneys. We measure concentration of urine by measuring specific gravity. Urine output after birth is about 15 to 60 milliliters 20 times a day. This results in about 250 to 500 milliliters per day at about a year of age. Neonates have a different specific gravity when they start out. They have immature kidneys and they can't concentrate urine effectively. So their specific gravity is a little bit lower than adults the normal for adults, is greater than 1.010. By 5 to 10 years of age, someone urinates about 6 to 8 times per day, so not as often. A couple of terms you may hear when talking about children and voiding is enuresis, which is the involuntary passing of urine after toileting has been established. Another term is nocturnal enuresis, which is commonly called bedwetting. This is really only a problem after the age of six. Now adults normally void an average of five to seven times per day. Normally, this should result in about 1,500 mLs per day or about 60 mLs per hour. In older adults, this may be decreased by impaired renal function. This can be caused by atherosclerosis or long-term hypertension. Urine output may also be affected by an enlarged prostate in men. Weakened support muscles in women may also affect voiding. This results in a decreased ability to completely empty the bladder or a decreased bladder capacity. Impaired renal function will affect the ability to concentrate urine. It may result in urinating more frequently or less frequently. The result is often increased frequency of urination, especially at night, and retention of urine, which can lead to an increased risk for infection. Okay, let's talk briefly about a few factors that affect urination. Unlike what we've already discussed, some of these factors can be affected through care planning. There are certain food and fluid factors that may affect urination. Fluids that increase output. Alcohol, which inhibits the production of ADH. Caffeine is a diuretic, increasing fluid output. Fluids or food high in sodium may cause retention of fluid to maintain normal concentrations. Certain prescribed medications will also affect output. Some common culprits are diuretics, which increase the formation of urine by preventing reabsorption of water and electrolytes from the tubules of the kidney into the blood. Some common medications that decrease urine output include anticholinergics and antispasmodics, such as atropine or belladonna, in addition, antihistamines such as Sudafed, antidepressants and antipsychotics, including MAO inhibitors, medications used to treat Parkinson's disease, beta blockers like propranolol, and antihypertensives can all decrease urine output, leading to orthostatic hypotension, for example. This is one of the things that makes urinary elimination easy to tackle. Everything kind of makes sense. This is one of the first places I look and do some critical thinking when I have a patient that is having a problem after undergoing initial therapy in the hospital. Problems with fluid balance and elimination are a common problem. Just to briefly review some of the common problems that lead to urination difficulty. These include heart failure or shock, which decreases circulation through the kidneys. Hypertension, we've mentioned. This can affect blood flow to the kidneys. Vomiting or high fever can lead to decreased urine output or retention. And renal calculi or kidney stones can cause blockages and prevent emptying. As previously mentioned, a major cause of blockage for males is prostate hypertrophy. It's important to mention that some surgeries or diagnostic procedures can lead to problems with urination. These include following a cystoscopy, which may cause the urethra to swell, post-op bleeding, could also be a cause, as well as spinal anesthesia, which results in a decreased awareness of voiding. Lastly, be observant for any problems with urination following any surgery adjacent to urinary organs, such as the uterus, that may cause abdominal swelling. Okay, let's talk about some key terms around urination, things you may use to document or provide report on a patient. Polyuria is producing abnormally large amounts of urine. This is usually seven liters or more. Now, when medications are given to promote output, like diuretics, we refer to this large amount of output as diuresis. Polydipsia is an excessive fluid intake or ingestion. Another common term is oliguria. This is low urine output, usually less than 500 mLs per day or less than 30 mLs per hour. This can occur because of decreased intake, but it likely indicates renal failure in the acute setting. Anuria is the lack of urine production. And dysuria is painful or difficult urination. There are some key important symptom and signs terms that patients may use to describe the problems they're having. Common terms include urinary frequency, which is voiding at more frequent intervals more often than usual. The total intake or output may be normal. Another symptom often reported is urgency, the feeling that a person must void. Now, urinary incontinence is involuntary urination and this is considered a symptom, not a disease Patients who report this should have their symptom investigated. Another problem is urinary retention. This is impaired emptying of the bladder, which results in bladder distension and causes poor contracting of detrusor muscles. Patients may also experience overflow, voiding, or incontinence as a result of urinary retention. This often results in about 25 to 50 mLs of urine leakage at frequent intervals throughout the day. One cause of urinary retention is a neurogenic bladder. This means that the patient does not perceive bladder fullness and is unable to control the sphincters that hold and release urine. Okay, so what can we do when there is a urinary elimination problem? The first step is physical assessment. This includes percussing the kidneys, palpating and percussing the bladder, looking at the skin for color, turgor, and edema, and asking about any history of incontinence or other problems. Inspection of the meatus for swelling or inflammation and inspection of the perineum is also a component of a focus assessment. Assess for normal urine output in an adult, that is 60 mLs per hour, about 500 mLs a shift, or 1,200 to 1,500 mLs per day. In children, the normal output is about 300 to 1,500 mLs per day, so a wide range. Always report any oliguria, which is less than 30 mLs per hour, This may indicate low blood volume or kidney malfunction. Next, you want to analyze the urine. Urine is 96% water and only 4% solutes. It is made up of organic solutes such as urea, ammonia, creatinine, and uric acid. It also has some inorganic solutes like sodium, chloride, potassium, magnesium, and phosphorus. There should never be any microorganisms, glucose, ketone bodies, blood, or nitrites in the urine. These are tests that can be done on urine easily and quickly at bedside or in the lab. One of the best ways to assess urine output is to measure the residual urine, that is the urine remaining in the bladder after voiding. There should normally be no residual urine or very little, perhaps 3 to 5 mLs. Residual urine can lead to urinary stasis and urinary tract infection. It can be caused by bladder outlet obstruction, for example, from an enlarged prostate. Measuring residual urine determines the need for intervention. The use of a bladder scanner may be helpful in estimating residual urine volume and diagnosing urinary retention. Consider this before placing the urinary catheter. If urinary retention is confirmed, a catheter may be placed. Oftentimes, when we first put in a catheter, we're going to simultaneously collect a urine specimen. A urine specimen requires about four ounces or 120 mLs of urine, and a minimum of 30 mLs for a urinalysis to be performed. Placing a catheter with sterile technique is a good way to get a clean specimen. If the patient does not require a catheter, you can simply use a hat, and rinse the hat when you're finished with cool water and store it away for later use. Patients can be taught to measure and record their own urine output as well. Be aware that some urine specimens are timed. This means they should be collected at a particular time of day. An example would be a urine specimen that's collected in the morning to test for pregnancy hormones. Okay, let's go over some good tips for maintaining normal voiding patterns, and then we'll talk about the two most common problems and how to help patients with those issues. Patients will have an easier time voiding when they assume a usual position for voiding, including leaning forward or standing for males. If the patient must remain seated, elevate the head of bed to Fowlers if possible and tolerated. Patients may require assistance to the bathroom or a bedside commode or urinal to promote independence and privacy. Always allow time for urination and offer reading or listening to music. Pay attention to what the patient's usual habits are. Warm the bedpans whenever possible. You can do this with running warm water. If patients are having difficulty starting their urine stream, you can provide warm water poured over the perineum you can also place a warm water bottle over the abdomen prior to voiding. Some patients respond to the sound of running water. You can do this by turning on the faucet and allowing it to drip. Perhaps most importantly, remember to promote adequate fluid intake. Normal adult intake average is about 1,500 mLs of measurable fluids per day. Now. This intake will depend on the patient's situation. Let's say you're caring for a patient at risk for kidney stones. They may require 2,000 to 3,000 mLs per day to reduce their risk of developing renal calculi. Other patients may be at risk for fluid overload, such as patients with heart failure. These patients may have a fluid restriction, Now we're going to talk about three of the most common problems that nurses see, and we'll cover some important tips for caring for these patients. The first is urinary tract infection. Nurses can prevent urinary tract infections by using strict asepsis when placing catheters and performing catheter care. Nurses can also advocate for removing catheters when they're no longer needed. Encourage patients to drink at least eight eight ounce glasses of water per day if it's tolerated. Encourage showers over baths if someone is prone to urinary tract infections. Encourage healthy patients to increase the acidity of urine through regular intake of vitamin C, such as cranberry juice. Instruct patients to avoid harsh perfumed soaps. Maintain regular trips to the bathroom and females to wipe from front to back. Now we're going to discuss urinary incontinence. Support of urinary continence is approached in a stepwise manner. It starts with keeping a voiding record or diary, then scheduled toileting, then prompted voiding. It incorporates Kegel exercises and dietary and fluid intake alterations throughout and it may involve assistive and portable devices as well. The first step is continence or bladder training. This is suggested for bladder instability and or urge incontinence. Remember, urge incontinence is feeling the need to void right away. Patients must be alert and physically able to follow this program. Scheduling voids encourages a normal pattern of urination. Patients are instructed to postpone voiding and void according to a timetable. They initially want to void every two to three hours. The patient would be instructed to practice deep, slow breathing until the urge to void passes. Once the schedule can be maintained, you can increase the distance between each void just slightly. The patient may also be encouraged to void every four hours at night, whether they have the urge to void or not. Teach patients to avoid excessive consumption of citrus juices, alcohol, and caffeine. Always schedule diuretics in the morning. Provide waterproof underwear and change pads often to avoid urinary tract infection. Encourage the patient to join an exercise program and provide positive reinforcement. If this training fails, move to schedule toileting. With this, the patient is instructed to void every one to two hours. With this approach, there is no attempt to delay voiding if the urge occurs. The third step is prompted voiding. This is reminding the patient when to void. When caring for patients in the acute setting, remember to maintain skin integrity wash the perineal area with soap and water after incontinence, and always provide instruction on Kegel exercises. When properly performed, there is no contraction of the buttocks and thighs. Teach patients to perform these often. Okay, lastly, we're going to talk about urinary retention and how to help patients with this problem. The best way to approach mild urinary retention is to provide instruction and interventions for maintaining normal voiding patterns. If this doesn't help, the physician may order a cholinergic drug to stimulate the contraction. The bladder is often flaccid, which means weak or soft. Manual pressure, which is called Creed's maneuver, may help empty the bladder. This approach is only used for patients who are not expected to regain control. As a last resort, an indwelling Foley catheter or intermittent straight catheter every three to four hours may be advised. Clean intermittent self-catheterization is usually performed for patients who have neurogenic bladder dysfunction or long-term retention that isn't expected to improve. At first, catheterization may be necessary every two to three hours and then increasing to every four to six hours. Initially, patients may attempt to void before each catheterization and then insert the catheter if they are unable to void, and they should be encouraged to maintain adequate hydration, usually 2,000 to 2,500 mLs of fluid per day. Assess patients for being good candidates for this method. Patients are taught to catheterize themselves and asked to return demonstration to verify competency and provide an opportunity to ask questions. Well, that's it for our urinary elimination podcast today. If you're looking for more information on urinary diversion, bladder irrigation, or other catheterization methods, or to listen to other podcasts in this series, go to mynursingmastery.com.